0: Well, I noticed something this morning as I was sitting here just looking over my notes that I borrowed last week's uh, template and form, and I forgot to change the heading. So if yours says Isaiah chapters 11 through 20, this is not a repeat. It's chapters 21 through 30, You'd like to make that correction. And this is the 28th of January, not the 21st. And uh, if you did not pick this up because you thought it was last week's, raise your hand and we'll put one in your hand. (laughs) Okay. Uh, There's a couple down here on the front that uh, that need these. Um, As we look at Isaiah beginning in chapter 21, as um, Marilyn mentioned, and I had mentioned this in our prayer time before the service, uh, some of Isaiah is, is quite difficult. Uh, it jumps around, it seems. I mean, Isaiah has a theme in front of him, but from our perspective, it's kind of bouncing around, and, and Isaiah 21 through 24 in particular Uh, talks about a number of different nations and what's going to be happening uh, to them in the future uh, in judgment, uh, as well as in some cases in restoration. And, um, you know, as we begin to look at that, we also find that woven in and through the message to the moment, that is the time of Isaiah and what he's addressing There are prophecies that are scattered throughout that deal with um, the second coming of Christ that take us way into the future. And so as you're reading along, um, it does actually require a, a bit of breadth of knowledge of the scripture in order to relate some of the passages one to the other because... Uh, they They really do it really does move around. I had the most difficult time uh trying to approach or uh, figure out how to approach these particular chapters and as I mentioned to you last week, taking them ten chapters at a time is perhaps not the best way to divide up the book of Isaiah uh, because it cuts into uh transitions and things like that, but nonetheless it fits. In with our reading. So this morning as we begin, I want to read you a couple of quotes uh, by John D.W. Watts. He is the editor uh, of the Old Testament of the Word Biblical Commentary. And by the way, when I quote people, it's not an automatic endorsement of all of their work. In fact, I'm quite disappointed in this commentary. It uh It doesn't live up to its billing as an evangelical commentary committed to the inspiration and authority of Scripture. Uh, But anyway, uh, he uh, he does his thing with it. But he does say a couple of things right in the introduction that are worth reading. He says, Yahweh is seen as the true God of humankind. As in Genesis 1 through 11, he stands in judgment over human pride and ambition. And you can see that in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 9 to 22. He is also the master of life and death for all people of the land. And then immediately following in another paragraph, he says, The core of the vision's theological message, however, is that Yahweh is the Lord of history. He calls and dismisses the nations. He determines their destinies. He divides the ages and determines the eventual courses of mankind. Yahweh is the Lord of history. Our God is the God of history, as some people have said, uh, His story. God is the one who has laid out for us the unfolding of the human drama from the beginning of creation through the return of Jesus Christ. And in the next uh, four chapters, he deals with uh, Isaiah deals with Babylon, Edom, and Arabia. Uh, He gives us some information about Tyre. And then he concludes that section with the general punishment of all the earth. God is going to eventually deal with all those who have rejected him. And all the nations that have rebelled against him, uh, he is going to deal with them. And uh, no matter what has happened in the course of history, uh, God is the one who gets the final say. And you can read through that on your own. There's just a lot there that I don't want to take the time to read this morning. But I do want to take a few moments of our time to pose some questions that trouble people. The sovereignty of God, the Lord of history, and the will and choice of humankind. Now, let me read these four questions for you, and then I want to Talk about them as a group. If God is the Lord of history, how can human beings be held accountable for their choices? Did you ever think about that? Ever cross your mind? If God is the sovereign ruler of the nations, how can Satan be the God of this world? Which he is called in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4. Satan is the God, small g, of this world. If the rulers of this world have free will, how can God pre write the outcome of history? If rulers and mankind can do uh, anything they want to do, How is it that God can pre-write the outcome of history? And if God is sovereign, and human rulers choose evil, how is God not responsible for their actions? If He is the Lord of history, and rulers are choosing wicked paths... Is not God somehow implicated in those choices? These are tough questions, and they're questions that a lot of people ask, particularly uh, unbelievers. It is a subset of the question, if God is good, how come there's evil in the world? Uh, That, in essence, is the background behind these specific questions. And... I want to take a few moments this morning to talk about that because I think it's important that we have in our mind an understanding uh, both of the sovereignty of God and of the free will of man and also how it is that Satan is the God of this world. Everything begins in Genesis. (laughs) Genesis is the book of beginnings. But everything begins there. I wrote a paper one time uh, dealing with the first three chapters of Genesis, and basically the thesis of my paper was that every single doctrine in the Bible is found in Genesis 1 to 3. That it is the, the precursor, the, the germ form, the seed form of every doctrine of Scripture. And that all of it can be found there. And as we contemplate the fall of man, one of the things that we have to put together is what God said in creation and what the devil offered as an alternative. God created Adam and Eve. He blessed them and he said to them, multiply, fill the earth, rule over it, subdue it, have dominion. I made this for you. And when you look at those first two chapters of Genesis, you recognize that God gave the overview, the the rulership of the world to Adam and Eve. And he designed them in such a way that they were dependent... In fellowship upon Him, and He communed with them every day in the cool of the day in the garden, and Adam and Eve spent that time with God. And I think, among other things, they talked about the cultivation of the garden and and the and the governorship of the world. Uh, it was intended that Adam held the title deed, but that he ruled in harmony with the mind and will and purpose of God. Because we are not designed to be autonomous. We are designed to be in a dependent relationship, a benevolent dependence upon the God who made us. We're not the masters of our own destiny in that sense. We belong to God. But he gives us great freedom in that relationship. And so along comes the devil, and he tempts Eve and then Adam, and he says to them, if you eat the fruit of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God knows that you will be like him. And that you will uh, have the same kind of insight and wisdom uh, and power that he has. And he's withholding that from you. And as they gave consideration to that, there was fine print. There's always fine print in the devil's suggestions that they were not aware of. And the fine print was they could not be like God. They could not take the place of God. They could not be independent and autonomous. And when they sold out to the temptation, what they unwittingly did was they yielded the rulership of this world to Satan. And they came under his dominion. And from that day forward, he exercising a legitimate right, because God had legitimately given it to Adam and Eve, and if God is anything, he is fair and keeps his word. They sold out to Satan. And he began to rule the world through them, Destroying it, tearing it apart, um, wrecking their lives, wrecking nature. It was his purpose to ultimately bring to ruin everything that God had chosen. But God established limits upon that reign, he established boundaries because it was in his heart to provide a way of redemption. So now you have two things happening on a parallel track. You have Satan ruling through human beings, trying to thwart the purposes and plans of God, but you have God who is on the throne, who is setting the boundaries and limitations of how far he can go and what he can do. And so, he is determined, God is determined, to bring the course of human history out in the direction that he has planned. It was his purpose to send a Redeemer. He gave that promise right in Genesis chapter 3. And it was his purpose through Abram, who believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, to become the father of a people That would ultimately give uh, lineage and rise to a, a Savior who would be born to redeem lost humanity. And through his birth and through his death on the cross, that he would be able, through his followers, to proclaim this good news throughout the world that you do not have to live any longer in bondage to Satan and in bondage to sin, but you can come to me, find forgiveness, restore a relationship with my Father, and we together will move toward the end of human history, uh, hand in hand, until we come to that great marriage supper of the Lamb and that millennial reign, that uh, kingdom where Jesus Christ is present on the earth. Now, how does that relate to the affairs of men and the rulership of the nations? I believe that, as the Scripture says, Daniel alludes to this uh, in chapter 7 of his prophecy. I believe that in everything from the local, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, alderman and mayor's office to the state capital to the nation's capital to all the nations of the world as scripture says there is an unseen counselor in every office the same one his name is satan and he is constantly whispering ideas and planting thoughts in the minds of all the rulers of people. Now, they don't need all of his help to come up with these ideas. We are wicked in and of ourselves. And what a lot of people don't realize is, if you took the devil off the scene right now for a moment, there's still wickedness in our hearts because we're born in iniquity. And we have inside of us that seed of rebellion against God. It's, it's just there, it's present. And so we have ideas of our own. I told you last week how wicked and evil the Assyrians were. Uh, and I, I, I won't even talk about that publicly, about the hideous tortures and, and gruesome uh, ways of execution that they used. But if you're so inclined, you can look it up on on the Internet and study history and whatever. Um, You don't have to be a biblical scholar to see how evil they were. (laughs) Everybody on the planet that studied ancient history comes to the same agreement because they left inscriptions about what they did. They're horrible. And it doesn't take the devil to incite human beings to be horrible. They can be horrible all on their own. But imagine this scenario. Imagine that uh, in some uh, ruler's throne room, some ruler's uh, place of office, he's thinking about things he can do to uh, advance his plans and purposes. And some of them are nefarious. Some of them are... Uh, An undertow of conspiracy, perhaps. And then alongside of that, there is the whisperings of the enemy that he doesn't realize those thoughts are being planted in his mind. But that evil is fomenting in that environment. There's only one means of escape, by the way. A true follower of Jesus Christ who humbles himself before God or herself before God is one who can rule with righteousness because they are dependent upon the Lord. But barring that, human beings are going to go astray. Now, I'm going to give you, for instance, in our imaginary uh, government office that there's 15 ideas on the table of how this ruler is going to uh, direct and control the advancement of his own agenda. How does it distill down to the one he chooses? God is the God of history. He is the one who sets the limitations He prohibits and thwarts that agenda which would go contrary to his plan. And he permits that one which plays into his plan in order that he might govern and direct the affairs of men, even though they are making up their decisions and their ideas under the God of this earth. There's a curious passage in scripture that says God makes even the evil to praise him. That's an amazing statement. Because when someone is sold out to the devil and the devil thinks he has the upper hand. God has a way of turning the tables. In fact, there's going to come a time at the end of the age when the devil takes off his veil, as it were, and begins to appear uh, as that dragon, that's the dragon, the serpent of old, the Antichrist. And he is uh, thinking that he is going to rule the world and ultimately defeat God. And what he's doing is playing right into God's hands. Because as he incites hatred toward Israel and the people of God, and marshals the armies of the world to gather against Israel, and that that day that they are all surrounding the nation of Israel with the intent of utter destruction, guess who will appear? Our Lord Jesus Christ. And in authority and glory and power as King of kings and Lord of lords, He will destroy the warring nations and deliver his people, and Satan will be defeated. And what he intended uh, as evil and the destruction of God's people will turn against him to be the final undoing of his rebellion. You know, when Jesus died on the cross and was buried, I'm sure that the devil felt like he had gained some kind of victory because he knew that if he could keep Jesus in the grave, that all of the plan of salvation would be defeated. And so on the morn of the resurrection, if you please, Guess where the devil and all of his evil hosts were assembled? They were hovering over a tomb. And they were intending to thwart the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 that he rose triumphantly through them without the blink of an eye that he utterly put them to shame and that he was raised uh, into the presence of God and all of the writings of decrees of sin against us were nailed to his cross and in that resurrection were done away with. They couldn't even slow him down. And so Satan was defeated once again. If I can get him on the cross, I can kill him. And now, if I can just keep him in the grave. But it was that death on the cross that defeated him and that resurrection that put him to public shame. You see, he's working to thwart the plan of God, but it's always playing into the hand of God. And so the nations of the world are working to thwart the plans of God. Whether they recognize that openly or clearly or not, that's what they're doing. And yet God has set boundaries upon the freedom. And within those boundaries, they ultimately play into the hand of God. Is God responsible? The scripture says, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God is tempted by no one, nor can he be tempted by evil. God is holy and pure and righteous, and evil never crosses his mind. It is not a part of his nature or character. He is utterly righteous in all respects. So the evil that we do does not come from him. He is the Redeemer who offers a way of hope out of our bondage. And yet, for those who persist within the purposes of His ultimate plans, He permits their activities, in part because Adam sold out. And one day, the... Second man, the last Adam, will set it all right when he leads us into a millennial reign that will be like Eden in the beginning, only better because he will take us forward. I don't know if that helps you, maybe it just confuses you even more, but we need to recognize that God is on the throne of human history. He's not only on the throne of the history of nations, but I'm grateful that He is on the throne of my life and that no evil can touch me save by His divine permission. And if that is the case, the Scripture says, He allows it that I might come out better for it because it is his purpose to make me into the image of Jesus Christ. All that is required of me is submission to the acknowledgement of Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As we move forward, and I'd like you to go to Isaiah uh, chapter 24, And uh, look in verses 18 and following. This is some background to the return of Christ. And notice how closely these things parallel the book of Revelation. Beginning in Isaiah 24, verse 18, the middle. The one who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare, for the windows above are opened and the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken asunder, the earth is split through, the earth is shaken violently, the earth reels to and fro like a drunkard and totters like a shack, for its transgression is heavy upon it and it will fall never to rise again. That's speaking of some of the horrors of the great tribulation. And it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings on the earth. Now, he's not talking about good angels. He's talking about Satan and the evil angels as the host of heaven. And they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and confined in prison. And after many days they will be punished. The sun and moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And His glory will be before His elders. Can you see the references that give us a shadow image of the future. And then in chapter 25, O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt you, I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. You have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin, a palace of strangers is a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. Therefore a strong people will glorify you, cities of ruthless nations will revere you. What's going to happen after that final battle and the Lord Jesus Christ triumphs over the assembled uh, armies against Israel? What will happen after that? The scripture says all the nations will come to Jerusalem and do homage. They will recognize his authority and his lordship. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. <coughs> for the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. Like heat and drought. you subdue the uproar of aliens. Like heat by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silenced. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. On this mountain he will swallow up a covering which is over all the peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. In other words, he'll take the blinders off their eyes and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, for whom we have waited, that He might save us. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. Moab will be trodden down as a straw is trodden in the water of a manure pile. He will spread out His hands in the middle of it, and then as we move down, the Lord will lay his, low his pride together with the trickery of his hands. The unassailable fornication of your walls he will bring down. Speaking of the opponents, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous may enter and I wanted to reference I didn't write this in my notes but I wanted you to have it Revelation 19 7 to 9 you can write that down and read it later the marriage supper of the Lamb as God invites all the nations to the marriage supper And then in chapter 26, verse 19, if you move forward a little bit. Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to departed spirits. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close the doors behind you until hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place. That is a forecasting of resurrection. That there will be a future even for those who die in the Lord. And then in that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent with his fierce and mighty sword, even Leviathan the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Again, you can reference that to Revelation. And Revelation 13.1, and in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 8 to chapter 13, verse 4. This is a fascinating passage because it says in Zechariah that the people of the Lord, the, 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 the at that point, I, they're not of the Lord, but they're the Jewish people. They will be waiting in Jerusalem, trembling because of the nations that have gathered against them. And they will be in their eleventh hour, so to speak. And all human hope is gone. And they are in essence waiting for that moment when the battle begins and it looks like they're going to be annihilated for sure. And then it says, they will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will believe. Isaiah puts it this way at the end of the book. He says, can a nation be born in one day? Can a people be brought forth all at once? This is the purpose and plan that God has for Israel. As she looks upon their Messiah, whom they missed, But now they see him for who he is. And they will at once believe in him. And he will rescue them and redeem them and save them from their oppressors and establish his kingdom. And he will bind for a thousand years that serpent of old, Leviathan, The dragon that lives in the sea. It's right out of Revelation. Or Revelation is right out of Isaiah. However you put it together, the Bible is a seamless whole. Forty different authors. Sixteen hundred years of human history. All of it saying the same thing. Because despite the human writers, it has but one author who has inspired every word of every book to take us to the same conclusion. And then finally, in this section, the last few chapters, Judah is offered deliverance and warned if she does not take it. The one message that Isaiah is trying to communicate here, and and friends, we need to take this to heart, because it applies in many ways in our lives. Isaiah says to them finally in chapter 30, do not trust in Egypt. Don't go down to Egypt. Don't put your hope there, he says, because (laughs) Egypt can fall in the blink of an eye. They can be utterly destroyed in a moment. Don't put your confidence in Egypt. In fact, God knows what's going to happen in Egypt. And he's urging them to put their hope and their trust in the Lord. That's actually where we begin next week. And I'll try to get the title right but to put your hope and trust in the Lord, not in the arm of the flesh. Friends, our hope does not lie in human solutions. As the people of God, our hope does not rest in human beings. We cannot turn to other sources for deliverance. Our hope lies in God. I don't care what the problem is. I, uh, my wife attended a seminar yesterday at uh, McHenry County College dealing with the various uh, help ministries and whatever um, throughout our county. And she attended some of the ones that had to do with the opium uh, Crisis that is opiate crisis, not opium, but opiate crisis, heroin uh, and other uh, drugs of that nature that are affecting our communities. We're in real trouble, and and this had nothing to do with that, but it reminded me, as I was meditating on putting our hope in the arm of the flesh, the um, the failure rate of human detox systems is about 90%. In fact, the, the failure rate of getting off of crack cocaine is even greater than that. Uh, crack cocaine is just like cooking up for life uh, as is heroin. And it's But you know who has... The greatest success rate, literally an inversion of the numbers to where there's 80 to 90% success rate. Christian organizations such as Teen Challenge that put all of their hope in the Lord. God is the deliverer. God is the redeemer. Whatever your situation, and I, and I just mentioned that as one possibility, drug addiction, but you can, you can add all kinds of things, financial crises, health crises, um, emotional distress, family troubles. Put it all together. The ultimate solutions lie in Jesus Christ. And I am not necessarily negating skilled and trained people who love the Lord. I have a dear friend uh, whom I mentored toward his ordination with the Krishna Missionary Alliance, who is the head of online clinical counseling at Northwestern University. And he is overseeing all of the um, uh, what do you call it, internships of uh, those people who are going into clinical counseling practice. But he loves Jesus Christ with all his heart and believes in the Word of God with all of his being. And his counseling is solidly biblically based. And he will tell you in a heartbeat, despite all of his training that has... Earned him that position at Northwestern University. That Jesus is the answer. Other people may help for a season. There might be a little mitigation of difficulty. But true deliverance lies in Jesus. Don't go to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt. It can collapse in the blink of an eye. Put your hope in God. He is the one who delivers us. He is our rescuer. And he is the one who frees us from bondage.